You are a man who has got what I would call probably one of the the most interesting background of many of the people who come out of Hollywood. You're a, you're certainly an unusual man for Hollywood because you have been married to the same person for a good many years. You've had a marvelous family life. You're one of the top pros in the business. You had some very early, early starts back in Evanston, Illinois, and then spent some time up in, in St. Helens, Michigan. I'd like to go back a little bit to those times about some of the early recall that you have of those years before you became the star that you are today. Well, I was uh, born, as you suggest, in the suburb of Chicago, Evanston, and raised in the backwoods of Michigan. I, I think that probably had a, a profound influence on me. I'm one of the few members of my generation that went to a one-room school. I went to a school where there were 13 pupils in eight grades, three of whom were my cousins. <laughs> and uh, I went to that school and lived in that uh, kind of small backwoods community until I went to high school nearly. And uh, it, uh, I think, was a, a significant shaping influence on my life. It, uh, for one thing, gave me a, a lifelong affinity for the woods and the kind of life uh, you live there, the kind of values that uh, that implants. Um, I think, too, it had something to do with my becoming an actor because I was thrown so much on my own resources as a boy, uh, having no playmates. All kids play pretend games, but I think I uh, was more devoted to them and uh, played them more than most kids. Uh, I somehow found myself converting most of the books I read to uh, imaginary games, even when I was out hunting. When you're 10 years old and it's uh, uh, 20 above zero and you're hunting rabbits and your hands are cold and your nose is running and you haven't seen a rabbit in, uh, in three hours, it's yeah. easier to convert to being <laughs> Kit Carson uh, leading the settlers to safety and looking for, uh, for Arapahoes behind the tree. <laughs> it's a funny story. I can recall doing that when I was a kid. Did you ever bring the rabbits into the house and hold them over the dining room table? No. I, when I got them, I was very proud of them. I think the, <laughs> sure the trophies of the hunt are, uh, are very valuable to uh, small boys and grown men as well. When did you get to Northwestern University? I got to Northwest, went to Northwestern because I won a, an acting scholarship uh, from uh, community theater I'd done some work for when I was uh, acting at, uh, in high school. I was very lucky in going entirely by the chance of where I lived to what was then considered to be uh, quite specifically the best public high school in the United States. Mm -hmm. That was when public schools were still good. Mm -hmm. And they had a fairly extensive uh, theater program and uh, I plunged into it because uh, I wasn't really uh, socially equipped for uh, the life of a fairly sophisticated suburban high school coming fresh out of the backwoods. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, as I said, won an acting scholarship and went to Northwestern, which of course, as everyone knows, is a yeah. particularly Big good school. theater school. Good school. Yeah. Very good. Mm -hmm. When you were there and when you started working prior to getting your start in the Broadway show back in 1948, I believe it was Anthony and Cleopatra, did you have any idea that there was a road for Charlton Heston that was going to be what it is today, with you being such a big international star? Well, I wanted, my goal was to be an actor, a professional actor. I didn't, my goal was not to be a star. Um, 
Now, even to have an ambition of making a living as an actor is a somewhat unrealistic uh, goal. Uh, it's not really a profession in which you can make a living. Uh, and you can't convert uh, an ambition in those terms uh, into, uh, into realistic uh, aims. But nevertheless, that's how I felt. Um, I was delighted when I began to work, and of course, uh, happier as the parts got bigger, and uh, as my capacity to control my career and have some uh, influence in not only doing the parts I wanted to do, but uh, help determine who did them with me and who directed them and how they were uh, written and so forth, is of course the most valuable kind of, uh, of control an actor can have, and very rare. And, uh, uh, luck uh, played uh, a great part in that, beyond question. Tell us about how difficult it was for you to get that first role on Broadway back in '48 with Anthony and Cleopatra. Well, I got it, I suppose, in large part because I was tall. Miss Cornell uh, was a, a tall actress, or she seemed even taller than she was, and she liked to surround herself with tall men. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had studied Shakespeare and played Shakespeare in school. I was equipped for it, and uh, uh, I was cast in it uh, in a relatively small part, which uh, got slightly larger as some other roles were condensed as the run of the play went on. It was, a, again, very fortunate, an ideal apprenticeship for a young actor. Uh, the Cornell McClintic management was one of the most highly professional and purely dedicated uh, in the Broadway theater of that time. And you must remember that the American theater then, it seems ridiculous now, but it was all centered in New York. Not only was that the capital of the American stage, but all the professional companies that toured the country came out of there. Now, happily, the theater is decentralized. There are many cities, uh, a dozen probably, with indigenous communities of actors, playwrights, directors, designers, uh, who produce plays of their own, which tour all over the country, including to New York. But uh, then you had to go to New York if you wanted to act in the stage. I then had no thought of acting in film. Uh, when I was trained as an actor, uh, serious acting was presumed to be stage acting. Uh, I hadn't yet realized what has been true for three generations, that no actor in the world achieves an international reputation without doing at least some films, even actors like Paul Schofield and John Gilgood, who do relatively few films, uh, nevertheless work in film and must if they are to extend their capacity to control their stage career. When you got to Hollywood, I think the first picture that you uh, did was um, 1950, uh, yeah. Dark City. Dark City. Uh, certainly, from that point on, of the 54 films that you have made, I think probably up today, this is about 55 or 56. Like yeah. um, did you feel at any time that the roles that you were cast in were you as a person, the typecasting, the, the cliche that they use in the business, a person has been typecast? I think, uh, again, I was very fortunate. Uh, first in coming into films at a time when the studio system was ending, when Hal Wallace, who signed yes. me to, to my first contract, was intelligent enough to recognize that that day was gone and thus gave me the independent contract I insisted on with a right to do plays and television mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. And then fortunate in that uh, 
quite uh, almost from the beginning I did uh, parts uh, none other than American roles parts in different periods which gave me a chance to uh, establish uh, a range uh, that has helped me uh, now because an actor's followed throughout his career by the shadow of all the parts people remember him in and from almost the beginning, I played, in effect, character parts. I played older men when I had to paint the gray in my tumbles. And uh, You don't do that now. No, no. <laughs> God takes care of that very well now. And I was constantly playing these parts of old men with long white beards and long white hair who wore skirts and wrote with feathers or yes. put on chain mail and led armies through cities. and. Uh, before long, because of this, uh, American audiences would accept me as Andrew Jackson just as readily as Spanish audiences would accept me as an 11th century Visigothic knight or mm -hmm. uh, Italian audiences as a Renaissance sculptor, and this has helped me. So many of the roles that you have played over the years uh, are people who have been dedicated to causes. Is Charlton Heston a dedicated man to causes? It's um, would be very vainglorious, uh, though tempting to say, because I've played great men, uh, some of uh, of their commitment and focus uh, to other causes than their own self-gratification has rubbed off on me. I wouldn't dare make such a claim. Uh, I spend a lot of time on a certain amount of public service activity. Uh, most people in my situation do, I think. Uh, I've been enormously fortunate. I'm one of a dozen actors who can control their careers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it seems to me you have to give some of this back uh, as a part of a profession whose 47,000 members are almost all more or less permanently unemployed and with no chance of, uh, uh, of altering that situation. Uh, I was drawn, I suppose, first, therefore, to the Screen Actors Guild. I spent 12 years in that, and the American Film Institute and State Department things. But that's, uh, you can't equate that with Thomas Jefferson designing Monticello <laughs> or writing the Declaration <laughs> of Independence or Michelangelo painting the Sistine Ceiling. Let me ask you about that Michelangelo role in the agony and the ecstasy. Uh, did you have to do a great deal of study on the character and personality of Angelo before you played him, or like so many pros, you go in, you got your script, you had a basic idea, and you did the role. How much work did you do in that? Oh, I think, um, again, my, my method is on any biographical role, you have to do the research. Mm -hmm. uh, in most cases, there's a good, uh, good deal of uh, personal material, letters, and uh, even books often, yes. personal papers that are available, um, then contemporary biographies uh, from the period, uh, more co bi biographies contemporary to our time, which are considered definitive, yes. quote, quote. Yes. Uh, and you read all this, and uh, quite often the man's work uh, tells you as much as anything else. Uh, in the case of Michelangelo, you go to Florence and uh, the 
go to the Academia and see the David and stand there, that'll tell you a lot about Michelangelo. <laughs> I saw the Peter when I was down in the, in, in, uh, in, in, yes. in New York, and it's uh, oh yes, they had it toured. Yeah. Oh, phenomenal. All right, let's let's touch a little bit uh, on your days with uh, Cecil B. DeMille when you uh, when you did some of the some of the big Bible spectaculars, the big one, of course, which uh, that's which the only one. I did yeah, the Ten Commandments. Now. Was was he a difficult? Uh, producer to work with was he a man who demanded a great deal from his uh, his performers he had very firm standards of production uh, he was in my perception by no means a tyrant he had been when I worked for him which was in the last two films he made uh, had been for something like 50 years uh, an enormously successful producer director one of the most successful in the history of film and this cannot but shape your personality a little, but uh, he had a excessively, perhaps excessively formal manner, uh, invariably courteous. He could be very hard with technicians, uh, assistant directors and so forth. Uh, in my experience, he was almost invariably very courteous with actors, uh, invariably so with extras at a time before that had become uh, fashionable. Uh, when he had a long picture going through the holidays, he always took pains to make certain that a big scene with as many extras as possible was scheduled between Thanksgiving and Christmas <laughs> so that as many uh, extras would get work in that time as, as he could. 